0: Meeting the Hurricane, Dr. Reuben Hurricane Carter. The first time Reuben Hurricane Carter crossed my radar was back in the year 2000. It was during one of my channel surfing finger exercises when I came upon the Golden Globes Awards, where actor Denzel Washington was accepting an award for Best Actor. I was just in time to see Denzel Washington standing on the podium and acknowledging the real-life person he had portrayed, who had served almost 20 years of a life sentence for a triple murder he was never justly proven guilty of committing. The individual, who I understood then was the Hurricane, rose from his seat among the audience and reciprocated the appreciation to Mr. Washington. Rubin's aggressive and quick knockout boxing style earned him the nickname Hurricane. Although he lived in Toronto, Ontario, Reuben Carter was originally from New Jersey. Born in May 1937, he became a successful professional middleweight boxer in the 60s and the top contender for the belt. His aggressive early knockout boxing style, a style not unfamiliar to and some argue adopted by the great Mike Tyson, earned him the nickname The Hurricane. Reuben served in the U.S. Army but was no saint. He led a spotted life with arrest for muggings and an escape from a youth reformatory. In 1967, Reuben Carter, along with John Artis, was arrested for triple murder, tried, and sentenced to life in prison. The evidence and trial, however, was questionable, and Carter maintained his innocence, stating that the case against him was built on a house of lies. During incarceration, he resisted the process of being assimilated by imprisonment and declared that while his body was caged, his mind was free. In 1974, Carter, steadfast in his innocence, wrote a book called The Sixteenth Round, from number one contender to number four, five, four, seven, two. The publication generated new attention to his plight and spawned advocates from all walks of life for his release. Famed musician Bob Dylan quickly became one such active advocate for Reuben Carter's release. Carter's book struck a chord with a Canadian lawyer named Lesra Martin. Upon reading the book, the University of Toronto BA grad with his Dalhousie University law degree combined his efforts with a group of fellow Canadians towards gaining Reuben Carter's freedom. Lesra Martin filed a habeas corpus petition requiring a person under arrest to be brought before a judge or into court. This ensures that a prisoner can be released from unlawful detention, that is, detention lacking sufficient cause or evidence. In 1985, a judge noted that the prosecution had predicated upon an appeal to racism rather than reason and concealment rather than disclosure, and set aside the convictions. Reuben Hurricane Carter was released from prison after 20 years. My first encounter with the hurricane. My first personal encounter with Dr. Reuben Hurricane Carter was on a flight back to Jamaica in December 2002. I had migrated to Canada in July of the same year. My little brother was getting married, and although I had just moved to Canada after months of rejections, not enough Canadian experience or too qualified for this dishwasher job, hustling as a bouncer and also as a warehouse sweeper, where I told myself I was going to make the warehouse the cleanest they ever saw. I would use my lunch breaks to go networking over Microsoft Canada, which was across the street from the warehouse I was sweeping." I finally got a job in my IT field as a Lotus Domino admin and systems administrator with a nutraceutical company in Mississauga, a whole other story. Anyway, on my way to my brother's wedding in Jamaica, I was walking towards the Air Jamaica check-in line at Toronto's Pearson Airport when this confident presence caught my attention. The brethren wore a dominant cowboy-looking leather hat and booths. The attire and unusual mustache demanded a second take, which is when I thought to myself... That looks like Hurricane Carter. Interestingly, a loud animated group, fashionably, dressed in a quasi-dance hall goth manner also caught my attention. I then realized it was the entourage for dance hall reggae dancing genius, Bogle. We checked in, passed through customs, and boarded the flight quickly. Hurricane Carter was sitting in the first-class area, so as U.S. cheapies from the economy side of the plane walked past the first-class seated passengers, Carter's mannerism caught my attention. I'd never seen him in person before and wasn't 100% sure, so as I walked by, staring with that curious look on my face, Reuben Carter looked up, caught my stare, stopped for a second from trying to pull the seatbelt across his waist, and presented a welcoming nod and smile as if to say, yeah, man, I'm the same one. It happened that I was seated in the back half of the plane. "'Coincidentally, the now-deceased Bogle the Dancer "'and the six or so Roses crew members "'was seated in the back also. "'The flight was uneventful, "'except for members of the Bogle's entourage "'messing with the stewardess. "'This, however, ended quickly, "'since Bogle was having none of it "'and told his crew to chill and leave the lady alone. "'Bogle and I chatted about Toronto "'and the dance hall scene for a few. "'I told him I had just moved to Canada,' so didn't know much about the place aside from a Toronto Club restaurant called Bamboo by the lake that I once worked as a bouncer. All said, Bogle seemed to be an easy-to-get-along-with-general. I mentioned to him a friend named Papa T, who was a captain in my crew, that I was the general. Cool Yonders. Don't laugh at the name. We were teens. Life happened, and my crew was outgrown. Papa T migrated to the States and settled in California. He made some good investments and formed a crew in Jamaica called Lexus Crew, a slightly notorious crew where they only drove expensive Lexus. Bogle didn't know Papa T personally, but recalled the rift between Papa T and Dance Hall's lyrical master, Ninja Man. Papa T had slapped Ninja Man in the face because Ninja Man had slapped one of the ouch crew girls. Three years after our meeting, Bogle had stopped at a gas station along Constant Spring Road in Jamaica on his way home from a popular street dance where he had just had an altercation with dance hall king Beanie Man. He was shot and killed by riders on two motorcycles. Back to the flight, I remember the flight to Kingston was the roughest I'd been on. The seatbelt lights stayed on for the duration of the four-hour flight as the pilot reminded us he was trying to fly over a storm. The young lady who shared the seat with me looked only slightly less concerned. In an obvious effort to take our minds off the torture, we struck up a conversation. She grew up in Toronto and was studying at Ryerson U. She was visiting her Jamaican family for the first time. During the flight, I finally understood why people would relate to air turbulence with such reverence. The barf bag spent most of the flight conveniently snug in my lap. Watching the flight's path on the display, it was obvious the pilot had taken us along the U.S. eastern coastline. Over the Florida Keys... "'Cuba, and now approaching Kingston, Jamaica. "'I remember the captivating lush Blue Mountain Ranges, "'which I remember thinking how stark a contrast it was "'to Toronto and other cities I had recently come to know. "'The plane maneuvered towards the airport. "'As it banked, the outline of familiar communities "'appeared beneath my window. "'The pilot adjusted the flight again, "'and if by some irony I recognized "'the distinct bright orange roofing on the homes "'in the Angels' estate community.' This was the development that I had made my very first payment on a home and almost lived. A Italian-Canadian developer had ventured to move some squatters off a piece of land just outside the Spanish town and before the Crescent community. Thing is, the notorious gang in Spanish town was affiliated with one political party and the gang in Crescent affiliated with the other. The remoteness of the community was also a concern. News articles in the Gleaner disclosed that the developer was facing extortion by both gangs. Nonetheless, he was a rough and tumble man who bragged about being unfazed by criminal gangs as he was Italian and taught us what we were practicing. I decided to pull the contract and instead to build on a lot of land I had bought in Old Harbor. Well, as life would have it, Angels turned out to be a very good community as the It was gated and supporting commercial development was completed. The old harbor endeavor, not so much in a story in its own accord. The plane banked a few more times. Now over Kingston, I noticed the cement company mined out Rockfort hillside and the wheat silo stacks at flour mills. The plane banked again, and as the mountains zipped by the window, a male passenger, about late forties, sighed sweet Jamaica little above his breath. He realized I heard him at which he leaned over and explained that he had been away for many years and was taking his grown kids to Jamaica for the first time. That first trip back to Jamaica after moving to Canada just six months earlier was an eye-opener to the practice where Jamaicans who migrate should fatten themselves and spend on expensive clothing to ensure that they look like foreigner. Having a somewhat rough initiation to Canada, trying to get a decent job, I have lost about 20 pounds to what I later learned was culture shock. Not only did I not dress like a foreigner, I had lost weight, a lot of weight. I remember my mother being very upset and concerned about my thinner appearance. She bawled, Look how foreign, mash up my son. To compensate for this, my mother fed me large quantities of fried chicken and rice and peas for the duration of my short stay. She was determined to patch on a few pounds back onto her son. Trust me, I didn't complain. Meeting the hurricane, Fast forward to January 2006. Almost four years had passed since I happened to notice Reuben Carter on the same flight I was on, going to Jamaica. Much had changed. After three years with the nutraceutical company, I decided I needed out of the North American corporate bull and a break from the high-stress, highly dependable world of IT as I had come to know it. The company I had ultimately joined as the system administrator was making huge strides in its marketplace. It had become the leader in its industry, and one year held the title of being the supplier with the most products sold in Walmart in all North America. It also had the title of having the largest amount of print ads in North America. These strides saw a group of like-minded bodybuilding supplement enthusiasts engaged in a business they loved, growing into a huge corporate entity. Then the suits came in. VP positions created for executives lured from Fortune 500 companies like Pepsi, Colgate, and Baxter. Many of the grassroots individuals from the team left or was lured by a competing manufacturer. Ironically headed by a former college buddy of the founder of the current company, this led to litigation and legal threats. Changes in employment contracts, no-compete clauses, and to top that off, The company was the target of a U.S.-based class-action lawsuit claiming that ingredients in one of its leading products led to organ failure and, in one case, death. Regardless, the company was enjoying rapid exponential growth. Similar to our warehouses in Cheektowaga, New York, the location on Derry Road in Mississauga ran out of available space, so the decision was made to move to a larger facility. An 80,000-square-foot building located between Bell Canada and Hewlett-Packard HP was bought from Pfizer, a leading pharmaceutical company that had built an even larger building and moved from the outskirts of Toronto to the center of Mississauga. They were the makers of Viagra, Nuff said. I remember meeting with them to have the building access codes and procedures transferred to me. Over the years, I had outgrown the system administration position and was moved into carrying out IT project management duties. Management of the move to the new 80,000 square feet facility became my responsibility. My director was a high-level thinker. He belonged to some Mensa high IQ group and was very protective of the company's data and in particular its nutraceutical formulas. He trusted no one. I remember when I recommended a professional data infrastructure moving company like Recall or Iron Mountain for the move, he retorted that we were in a highly competitive industry and a driver from one of these companies could easily be bribed to somehow compromise our data. I remember dismantling then transporting the data servers in my Toyota Sienna and reconstructing the environment at the new location. Pfizer had left a biometric access control system on the new building, and I had become the man with the building access, managing the security room and the access control equipment contained in it. I remember it being some serious security equipment, but I guessed securing the secrets to the formula for Viagra would have demanded Fort Knox-type security. Anyway, I diverted. That will be another reflection. So after leading the IT infrastructure move to the new building, I remember the final day of the cutover weekend, I got to work the Sunday morning at around 8 a.m. and didn't leave the office till around 6.30 p.m. the following day. After meticulously spending weeks building out a pristine network and server room, the system failed the Sunday night, and, with my boss, losing pounds and morphing into an anxious Rip Van Winkle by the second— I had to rapidly go through the entire network in a matter of minutes to find the point of failure. Fixed. I remember deploying biometric login to all the computers on all four floors. Sleep for me was during the few seconds the system took to carry out a reboot. I remember going from office to office working on the computers, all the while in the background. The sun went down, dark of night, walking dead hours, then the sun coming back up. I remember seeing the empty car park slowly filling up with cars and employees making their way towards the building and disappearing into the doorway below us. I remember the system grinding to a halt as the workers all tried to use their biometrics logging all at once. Yup, that's when the lesson of load testing and Murphy's Law was reinforced. At around 5.30 p.m. that Monday afternoon, I remember noticing that the system was under a hack attack. Thanks to some Cisco firewalls, I was able to arrest it. Anyhow exhausted, I went home, slept, and was back on it the following day. The move was successful, and everyone involved was promoted and rewarded as a result. However, there was always that part of me that wasn't feeling corporate Canada, and I started contemplating the move away from corporate politics. I had applied to join the Toronto Transit Commission, TTC, and it actually had come through. I simply wanted to get away from 24 7s availability, Blackberries, rack servers, promises of bonuses or promotions, and anything Microsoft. Simply anything that demanded my mind space past the eight or so hours I was committed to work on that day. I thought, TTC, I'd drive a bus, park it, forget about it. Till the next day. I'd take the 40% pay cut for the peace of mind. After participating in info sessions and interviews, completing bus and streetcar ride-alongs and submitting observation reports, doing a medical and yet another interview, I was somehow identified and selected to be trained straight away to operate a subway train. This was a senior position in the TTC, as subway operator was a sought-after position, as this meant less interaction with the public and no fare collecting. Normally, an operator would need to have driven bus or streetcar for a few years before even applying for subway. The failure rate was very high, and failing to become a subway operator would mean losing your previous position in bus or streetcar operation. A failed attempt would usually result in that operator being assigned to the dreaded ticket sales booth. So after weeks of incident-free, meticulous subway operational and safety training— I was unleashed on the YUS line as a subway operator. Trust me when I say, TTC frontline job is possibly the most stressful, underrated, misunderstood job in Ontario, and possibly Canada. After months of graveyard shifts and attempted stabbing and jumpers, I decided it was time to change gears. As an aside, I learned that the second highest location for suicides in North America is the TTC subway. TTC suicides are not carried in the media. I resigned from the TTC, realizing that operating a subway train is not the same as seen in the Western movies or on cartoons. There was also this constant palatable aggression between union staff and management and the public and TTC overall. I restarted my own IT consulting business and quickly picked up a new challenge. It was a great gig as I was assigned the position of an IT team lead for Hydro One Ontario Hydro. The position required me to travel to Hydro One facilities all over Ontario, which was great as I got to see some really beautiful locations in the province. I got to visit beautiful North Ontario towns like Parry Sound and Muskoka. I even got to see the Great Canadian Shield. Again, I digress, so again, I'll leave that for yet another reflection. On to my second encounter with Dr. Reuben Hurricane Carter. It's January 2006, and I'm taking the family for a well-earned, repeatedly deferred visit to Jamaica. The American airline trip included a three-hour transfer in Miami. We are at the check-in at Toronto's Pearson Airport, where once again I glimpse the distinct presence of this brother ahead, in the line wearing a distinct cowboy dark brown leather hat and boots. It's Reuben Hurricane Carter. I nudged my wife, directing her attention to the man at the check-in counter, wearing the leather cowboy hat. That's Hurricane Carter, she shrugs a rebuttal. Him look too old to be Hurricane Carter. As we boarded the flight and I noticed that Hurricane Carter was not in VIP section, instead he entered the plane after we did and sat in the very last seat towards the rear of the cabin. At cruising, I had to go squeeze the sponge, a.k.a., take a washroom break. I joined the short lineup awaiting my turn at the can. Since the washroom was at the rear, the line was right by Carter's seat. I glanced over the seat and noticed that he was scanning through a stack of what looked like research printed on letter-sized white paper. Upon seeing the words, Highway 2007, I assumed he must be preparing for a speech or presentation in regards to the Highway 2000 construction project that had underway in Jamaica for some time. As the line got shorter... I was now just slightly over his shoulder. Inquisitive me respectfully tapped him on the shoulder and inquired, You Hurricane Carter, right? He smiled, extended his hands into a shake and replied, Yes, I'm Dr. Reuben Carter. I leaned over and started yapping his ears off. I remember he was very gracious as he just leaned forward and engaged. This only served to encourage my intrusion as I started to instruct persons lined up behind me to go ahead. I got a victim here, Jay. I remember looking up only to meet my wife's eyes glaring at me from a few rows ahead. The look on her face was more of a, Oida Mr. Chatterbox, why don't you leave the passenger alone and get back to your seat? I noticed from the itinerary beside him that we were both doing a transfer in Miami to the same flight destined for Kingston, Jamaica. In Miami, being a few rows ahead of Hurricane Carter, we disembarked much earlier than he did. So I decided to walk uncharacteristically slow, "'hoping for him to catch up. "'This was strange for my wife, "'as she knows how much I tend to try to beat it out of airports. "'But she was cool, as she knew how much I admired "'what I called mental emancipation fighters. "'Individuals like Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Marcus Garvey, "'Nelson Mandela, Robert Nesta Marley, and Reuben Carter. "'Plus, we had a three-hour wait anyhow. "'Hurricane Carter caught up with us, and I introduced him to my family.' We started to reason again, and as we approached the concourse, he indicated that he was going to grab a smoke in the restroom while offering a cigarette. I signaled that I didn't smoke, but said I need to go squeeze the sponge again anyhow. I remember that washroom was packed with smokers. Guess that a popular smoking spot while waiting. Finishing with the washroom break, I found and took a seat in the waiting area beside the family. The place was already filled, so by the time Carter came, he got a seat some ways from us. There was people sitting on one side, but on the other side of him was an empty seat where he laid out the research papers and continued to scan through them individually. I was perched in my seat, ready to capture the seat next to him if it became vacant. I guess he saw my anxiety as he started to gather up the papers while beckoning to me to come over, with exaggerated Franz-like coolness. I nonchalantly strolled over while scanning anxiously from the corners of my eyes to make sure no one else moved towards the seat. Again, we started to reason. I remember him telling me about how it was for him in prison. He shared that he never once allowed his mind to accept that he was a criminal, nor accept that he was not a free man. He spoke about the fact that he loved living in Canada and would never live in the States again. We spoke about the prison system, and I learned just how easy it was for a man of color to be incarcerated in the North American system. I learned that a man of color was 12 times more likely to be imprisoned than any other race in America. That while blacks comprised 12% of the American population, 40% of the American prison population was black men. He explained that he was on a mission to help as many wrongfully accused individuals as possible. And as a result, one of his endeavors was a Toronto-based group called Innocence International, Inc. We talked about boxing, and I mentioned to him that Mike Tyson should thank him for introducing that aggressive boxing style that he obviously pioneered. He laughed appreciatively. Going down the history of injustice was a bit infuriating, so I decided to seize on the lighter side. I mentioned to him that when we saw him in Toronto earlier, my wife had insisted that he didn't look like Hurricane Carter. He looks over at her, laughs, and says loud enough for her to hear, You know why she says I don't look like Hurricane Carter? He continues with a grin. Because I don't look like Denzel Washington. We laughed, and I noticed a lady looking at him knowingly and having a laugh also. We continued reasoning, this time about Jamaica and the role its culture plays in the North American society. He echoed something I saw once before where it was said that Martin Luther King would go down to Jamaica just to be impressed by a nation where it was the norm for men of color to hold positions of leadership. I asked him if he was going down to do a speech or presentation. I said, I see that you are researching something about Jamaica's Highway 2000 project. Finally feeling guilty for taking up his time and leaving my wife alone with the kids so long, I started my exit. Pointing to the stack of paper in his lap, I said, I see you are preparing for a speech or something to do with Highway 2000. He replied that it was not research. Instead, it was the draft for a book he was writing titled The Way of the One-Eyed Man, or something like that. Do you want to read the foreword? he asked. At this time, I catch myself looking at him in astonishment. I was thinking... You, Reuben, the Hurricane Carter, writing a book and asking me to review the foreword, before it even hit the press. This is a trick question, right? Where is the hidden candid cameras? Suppressing the brethren you lick you head look that I realized was on my face, I calm as a duck responded, absolutely. He smiled, started leafing through, then gathered a small batch. While handing the batch over to me, he said, Here's the foreword. It's written by Nelson. As I accepted the batch, I was thinking to ask, Nelson who? But decided that obviously I should have known who this Nelson person was by first name, and asking would only certify my idiocy. As I flipped over the fist page, I saw the words, Foreword, by Nelson Mandela. So now I'm looking at the foreword, looking back to Hurricane Carter, looking back at the foreword, then back to him. I think I glimpsed my wife's madman, why you still bothering the gentleman's stare from across the way. I positioned myself to ask, Bredren, so you really expected me to be on first name basis with Nelson Mandela? However, instead, I collected myself, and as casual as possible asked, so how is Mr. Mandela doing? Hurricane Carter replies, he's doing well, but we are getting old. He sighs. At that time, I remember a Chris Rock show I'd was watching just a few days earlier. In one segment, Chris Rock made a joke about Nelson Mandela's marriage and recent divorce. I decided to risk displaying my non-comedic talent. I said, you know I was watching Chris Rock the other day, and he spoke about how hard marriage was for Mr. Mandela. Carter leaned forward, so I slipped into my very bad Chris Rock imitation and continued. Chris Rock said marriage is so tough, even Nelson Mandela got a divorce. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years locked up in South African prison. I continued. He was beaten and tortured every day for 27 years, and never once did he give up. He did 27 years doing hard labor in hot South African prison, no problem. He got out of prison after 27 years of torture, spent six months with his wife, then said, I can't take this shit no more. We laughed some more, at the expense of some off jokes I'll probably share some other time. Been writing this blog too long. Brain Fried By now, we had spoken for about two hours, and any time now, my wife would probably use the proverbial hook, and that would hook me by the collar and drag me over. As I started to get up, he saw me looking over top my wife and goes, Son, you have a beautiful wife and family. You should go before she gets angry. It was really a pleasure chatting with you. You are very enlightening. Let me know if you want to grab drinks while in Jamaica. He took out a business card and scribbled a number on the back. I recognized the area code to be a Toronto one I looked at the card appreciatively for a little bit Then secured it in my wallet That card travels with me to this very day And is the second oldest artifact in my wallet The oldest being my UDC card As we parted, he waved his hand out towards the concourse and said Listen, son, all this is gravy I'm not phased by this I should have been dead long ago They wanted me dead and buried long, long time But I'm here I'm alive. Life is a gift, and regardless of how little or what we do, when we do something for someone, we're appreciating that gift. My wife came over. I thought to get me. Instead, she being the considerate soul she is, had a camera in hand and asked Hurricane Carter if he mind taking a photo with me. He didn't mind, and the photo capture is counted among my most treasured. Interestingly, Hurricane Carter's words about the gift of life, helping others, and his commitment to justice had left a lasting impact on me, and from my observation, he continues to inspire many.